this series, it has been crazy how the songs that they've chosen um, have linked up with our series. Just remember that you just got done singing Praise Falls from My Lips, all right? Just keep, keep that in mind. Um, well, for those of you who haven't been with us four weeks ago, we started a new series. At least it was new then. Um, called High Places. And in this series, what we've done is we've been looking at how things like possessions and entertainment and success can actually become idols in our our lives. And today we're going to be looking at how the same thing can be said for relationships. That relationships can actually become an idol. Now, later this fall, in fact, you can start praying now. Um, Later this fall, we're going to, uh, to do a series, a teaching series on same-sex attraction. We're going to be, be going there, and I've, I've been having some conversations. I've been doing some reading in advance, and one of the books I came across is this book called uh, Washed and Waiting. It's a powerful little book, and in this, I, I, as I was reading this week, um, I came across a quote that really fits in extremely well with what we're going to talk about today. Um, here, we'll put it up on the screens for you, but he talks about just relationships in general, and, and the author says this. He says, people are wired to pursue relationships of love and commitment. We're on a quest to find a relationship in which we can want someone wholeheartedly and be wanted with the same intensity. Now, he continues to go on here and talk about uh, this conversation he had with a roommate. He says, I remember sitting with a roommate in our apartment living room once, just after the girl that he had been hoping to date turned him down. Her rejection had hit him pretty hard. And as he and I talked about it, he gestured towards his impressively large CD collection. CDs are these things they used to put music on, just in case. All right. So, and he says this, he says, just think, most of the songs on all of these albums are either about wanting love, finding it, and it being the greatest thing in the world, or else they're about losing love and it being the worst thing in the world. It's not just true for music, is it? A lot of TV shows, a lot of movies. In our culture, love is this idol. Throughout the series, you've made the point over and over again that idols usually start out as good things. And and are most relationships good things? They certainly can be. In fact, there's relationships that God himself has ordained, he's sanctioned. But anytime something competes for a place that should be reserved for God alone, that's where something is crossed into an idol. Now, I'd encourage you, uh, if you haven't already, take out this little green sheet. We, we take notes on here, and I can, right away um, I see that I've got a cut-and-paste error. So where it's bold here on your sheet, this is what we'd encourage you to write down. Just cross that out and, uh, and, and write this down, that our high places reveal our rival gods. That's what we want to look at right now, that, that our high places reveal our rival gods. What is rivaling Uh, the uh, devotion that is to be reserved for for God alone. And that's the the question that I have you think about here as we move into this teaching today, this question of who receives your utmost devotion? Who receives your utmost devotion? It's uh, a question I encourage you to be thinking about, about as we reflect on today's Bible reading. Are there any relationships in your life where your devotion to someone else rivals your devotion to God. Well, we've got more to cover today than even we usually have to cover, so let's dive right in. If you have your Bibles, let's open up to Genesis 29, uh, verse 9. And as we're turning there, if you have your Bible, I want to let you know, if you don't have a Bible at home, we'd love to give you one free today. We always keep a stack of them in the back, and whether on this visit or another visit, if you don't have a Bible, we'd we'd love for you to to take one. You don't have to sign anything. Don't even have to let us know. 
um, just, uh, just take that. All right, but before we read, I've got to give you a little bit of the backstory, actually, before I start reading here. Um, because we're going to be reading about a man named Jacob, and it's important to know a little bit of his history before we read this account here today. Um, Jacob was a twin who grew up in the shadow of his brother Esau. Since Jacob's dad favored his brother over him, it became clear that dad was going to give the family blessing, which was a huge deal back then. Um, he was going to give the family blessing to Esau. Jacob's father had very weak eyes. In fact, his father's eyesight was all but gone. And one day, while Esau was out hunting for his dad, Jacob deceives his father. He puts on his brother's clothes, so he smells like his brother. Um, It seems to be presented in the scripture that Esau is manly man, right? And Jacob is more mama's boy. And so he even puts, like, goat fur on his arms. He goes, let me feel you, son. Oh, yeah, you're not Jacob. (laughs) So anyway, so he tricks his dad. He tricks his dad into getting the family blessing. Well, manly man brother is not very happy with that. Manly man brother says, I'm going to get him. I'm going to kill him. And Jacob says he could do that, so I'm out of here. So Jacob flees, and he goes to where his people were from, out east. So he heads east. He stops when he gets in the general area, and he starts asking for directions. Obviously, he wasn't as manly as his brother, who probably wouldn't have asked for directions. So he asks for he asks he comes across a well. He asks some directions for some shepherds, and that's where we will pick up with Genesis 29, starting with verse nine. All right, he's about to meet the girl of his dreams. All right, while it says while uh, in in Genesis 29 nine, while he was still talking with the shepherds, Rachel came from her father's came with her father's sheep for she was a shepherd. When Jacob saw Rachel, he went over and rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well and watered her sheep. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and began to weep aloud, so she ran and told her father. All right, there's, there's the account. And, and I, I was thinking about this, and my mind went off on tangents, as sometimes it does. And I started thinking this would be some good romantic comedy stuff right here because you've got mama's boy Jacob trying to move this huge stone that's on the well like I got this and you know he's lifted it no I'm fine I got it. Well, maybe in my mind it would work but obviously only there okay same thing happened at nine o'clock you think I would have learned my lesson when I shared that all right so Jacob Jacob meets Rachel's family and he just and Rachel's family is actually his family but we're not gonna go there because we don't have time but he meets the family and Rachel's dad Rachel's dad's name is Laban. And Laban takes Jacob into the clan and offers Jacob a job. And when they discuss wages, here's how the conversation goes. We'll pick up with verse 16. Laban has two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes. But Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I will work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Now, we don't know, we don't know from the scriptures what the Bible means by weak eyes, that Leah had weak eyes. But what we do know is there's a contrast here. There's a contrast between weak-eyed Leah and Rachel, who you've got this redundancy here. She's got the lovely figure and she's beautiful. So you've got Rachel contrasted with her sister, Leah. And Jacob is so infatuated with Hottie's sister that he offers to work for Laban for seven years. 
And according to one of my sources, that is four times the going rate for brides in that time at that place. I can't remember what it is right now with the exchange rate. No, <laughs> okay, that wasn't in here. And, and I usually try to stick to this. When I don't, we get in trouble, don't we? Okay, so, but undaunted, he continues. Genesis, continuing up with verse 19. Laban said, Okay, it's better that I give her to you than some other man. Notice he doesn't say yes. We'll come back to that. He says, it's better that I give her to you than some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel. To get Rachel. But, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, and this is, this is what it says, give me my wife that I may go into Seven years fly by. Jacob says, in no uncertain terms, I can't wait for the honeymoon. I'm a dad of two girls. <laughs> that isn't exactly the kind of thing you say to the dad. You just don't say that. What we see here is a man who is so infatuated with Rachel, he's not even thinking clearly. He is not even thinking clearly. All right, now what I want to do right here is I want to project some things into the narrative that may or may not be in play but seem to be implied. You've got all this backstory that the the, the scriptures have told us about Jacob. You find out that he grows up in his brother's shadow. You know, he's the one, he's not dad's favorite. Esau, Esau, Esau. You find that, that Jacob is a man who never felt loved by his father, and now he's separated from his mother, who he was very close to. Jacob was living in a land that didn't feel like home, And Jacob had yet to understand God's love and care. I mean, the Bible doesn't come out and say it, but do you think there's any chance that affected him? Do you think there's any chance that Jacob had some deep longings that he believes his marriage to Rachel will satisfy? Well, we don't know that for sure. Here's what we do know. We know that Jacob worships the ground that Rachel walks on. Rachel's an idol. Rachel's become an idol. The idea of being with her has become an idol. Pulitzer Prize winner Ernest Becker once wrote about what happens when modern people reject the notion of God. He makes the point that with or without our knowing it, if we reject the idea of of a supreme or divine being, we begin to look elsewhere for meaning and purpose in things like romance. Here's what he writes. He says, the modern person... They still need to feel that their life matters in a grander scheme of things. If they no longer have God to do that, well, then then how do you do it? One of the first ways that occurred to modern people was this romantic solution where we take spiritual and moral needs and we focus them on an individual. Now, you might not use the same language that, that he uses, but I'd be shocked if there wasn't at least in some point of your life where you didn't have at least some of this in you, some of this idea. Most of us, at some point in our life, we, we begin to have a vision of, of a soulmate, someone who completes us, someone who will love and treat us the way we believe we should be loved and treated. And, and we start idolizing these notions. And we put expectations on a person or marriage or family that no human being is qualified to fill. Nobody can live up to the role that only God can play in our lives. 
Here's a question I wish we had more time to reflect on. We could use an hour on this one. Um, this question number two that you see on the screens. Are you looking for marriage and family for your salvation? Now, if you had to answer it in three seconds, almost everyone would say no. If we gave you an hour, I think most people would say, yeah, probably am. I'm looking for it to somehow complete me. I'm looking for somehow to, to make me more whole. I'm, I'm, I'm putting expectations that I not even know I'm doing this. I'm putting expectations on another person that one person can't fulfill. If you look to a person or even marriage or family to complete you or to fill a void that's missing, that's idolatry. It's idolatry. You're asking someone else to meet needs that only God can meet. So that's one end of the continuum. That's one extreme. The other extreme is certainly in play here in, in our culture, and that's just the hooking up culture, who say, what do you mean romantic notion? I've got no romantic notions. You know, just about the hookup. Just about the hookup. It took me all of five seconds to find this quote, uh, Googling this. You know, this person says, relationships are just too hard. Hooking up with boys is a lot easier. And it's so much, this has always been around, but we especially see it really in our face a lot lately. Well, this is idolatry too. This is idolatry too. I mean, here, here's why, back to our, our list, um, number three on that, that list, you know, it, are you doing this? Are you engaging in relationships that the Bible prohibits? Let's, let me speak just to professing believers right now. If you're a professing believer and you are engaging in hookups and you're not married, the Bible says don't do that. And so what you're doing is you're putting that above God, which then is idolatry. And if you're married and you're hooking up with someone you're not married to, you're doing something the Bible says not to do. You're putting that above God. That's idolatry. Now, if you're not a practicing Christian, I would hope that we could probably find some common ground here in that what the Bible appears to be teaching makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. It's very protective, very protective in nature. I mean, think about it. I love how one pastor puts it. He, puts, he says, does hooking up with people you're not married to really make your life better or just more complicated? Just more complicated. Does having more romantic partners strengthen your existing relationships with family and friends or does it make it more awkward? When you push the boundaries beyond the ones God sets, do you find that your deepest longings are met or do you feel empty? And let's say you just completely cut yourself free. I'm, I'm not even going to listen to anything the Bible says about relationships. And you just cut yourself free and say, I'm going to walk in my own freedom, create my own reality. And I'm just going to look at material that the Bible would caution me not to look at. Does that feel more freeing? Or does it feel strangely addictive? You know, and if you decide, I'm, I'm going to forget what the Bible says about relationships and I'm just going to connect with whoever I want to connect with, however I want to connect with, does that feel more freeing? Or do you find you're developing cravings that if you feed them, you still have the craving, and if you don't feed it, you still have the craving? So it seems as though what the Scripture is teaching is common to humanity and, and, and wise. So whether you're on one end of the continuum or the other, I, I would hope that we could find some common ground that in this, that we rarely do our best decision-making when we're under what I call the hacks. The hacks when we're infatuated with a person. You know, maybe you've met some people, um, some other people. I have a friend who um, was once under the hex, right? Where they're just, 
they're, they're in love with this person and they're making the worst decisions ever and their friends or family are saying, what are you doing? And they're like, this is all good. It's all good. You know, because they're just not seeing straight. Well, Jacob, we'll go back to our text now. That was the case with Jacob. He, he was not seeing clearly. Let's go back to the, sto- to the, to the account. And this is, this is written as a historical account. There are times where the Bible gives poetry. There's times where the Bible gives parables. This is written as a historical account. And so in this historical account, you've got Laban here. This is uh, picking up with verse 23. Laban gathers together all the people of the place and they have a feast because seven years are up, time to get married, have the big ceremony. But in the evening, Laban takes his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob. And he went into her. And in the morning, behold, it's Leah. And Jacob says to Laban, what have you done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Well, this is a big wedding feast, and I bet Laban poured Jacob quite a few drinks that night. You combine that with veils, no electricity, and what seems impossible becomes plausible. That Laban actually switches Leah and Rachel. And Jacob doesn't realize it until he wakes up the next morning. If you go back and read the full account of Jacob, before, after, which I encourage you to do, you're going to see there's all kinds of irony in what happens to Jacob. Because he's a deceiver. He is a deceiver. He's a deceiver before this. He's a deceiver after this. In fact, we wouldn't, he wouldn't even be married to weak-eyed Leah, weak-eyed Leah if he hadn't deceived his weak-eyed father. There's a cautionary tale here. Jacob's idolatry of Rachel led to a world of hurt down the road. You know, if you go back and reread what Laban said, he never technically promised Rachel. Jacob heard what he wanted to hear. And when we're in the hex, when we put something, we elevate something beyond where it should be elevated, it gets so hard to hear God's voice. So hard to hear wise counsel and receive it. We hear what we want to hear. When we raise up idols, we're less sensitive to God's voice and direction, more susceptible to bad advice, to manipulation, and to epic fails. In fact, I would argue that for most people, most of our most regrettable Moments were relationship based. Relationship based. Well, Jacob, certainly that was the case there. When we turn to idols, we expect pain and regret is going to follow. And because relationship takes at least two, the pain and regret of our decision isn't just ours. Jacob's idolatry of Rachel was the soil from which decades of dysfunction grew. Jacob just didn't favor Rachel over Leah, he also favored Rachel's sons. Leah's sons. And that poisoned the family system. Now, we don't have time to talk about what happened with all their kids, but let's just, before we wrap things up, let's just look for just a minute about Leah, about what it must have felt like for her. This girl who grew up in the shadow of her younger sister, through deceit that was her father's making, here's where she finds herself. I think it's summarized really well. There's an artist named Rich Mullins. I I love his work. He wrote a song about this. And in the song, he he writes, Jacob, he loved Rachel. Rachel, she loved him. Leah was just there for dramatic effect. Well, it's right there in the Bible, so it must not be a sin, but it sure does seem like an awful dirty trick. And her sky is just a petal pressed in the book of a memory of a time he thought he loved her, and they kissed. And her friends say, ah, he's a devil. But she says, no, he's a dream. And this is the world's best as I remember it. I mean, think about Leah. Here is a girl who no one courted, 
At least we don't have any record of it. She grew up in the shadow of her beautiful sister. I mean, how humiliating, how humiliating. After all of that, how humiliating to wake up the next day, to have your new husband disgusted, to hear in the next tent as he gets into an argument with your dad. And everybody knows this. And how painful would it be to have one fleeting moment where for the first time in your life you felt what it was like to be desired as beautiful, to be held and loved and wanted passionately. But then dawn comes. It reveals the illusion. And now you listen to your husband furiously express his shock and disappointment over you. So you've got Leah. And, and this is beautiful poetry. You've got Leah who takes that pedal, that memory, and she presses it in that memory book. And she holds out hope. And why do I say she holds out hope? Because the Bible says she holds out hope. Here's how this account continues, picking up with verse 30. So Jacob, now, he works it out with Laban, and he goes into Rachel also. And he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban for another seven years. And when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, now my husband will what? Love me. Now he'll love me. I brought him a boy. Now he's going to love me. Reuben means see a son. And then she conceives again, we continue to read, and bore another son. And she said, because the Lord has heard that I'm hated. Can you imagine that? Those words? Lord knows I'm hated. He's given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Simeon sounds like Hebrew for heard. And again, she conceives and bores a son and says, now this time, this time my husband will be attached to me because I've borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. And Levi sounds like Hebrew for attached. This is heart-wrenching. This is heart-wrenching. Jacob is repeating what his father did to him with his wife. And here's Leah, holding out hope that someday her husband's love will fill this emptiness and rejection that she's felt for so long. Leah, like so many before and so many after, she's trying to find happiness and identity through her family. But each new birth is only compounding her pain, and every day she's contemned to see the object of her hopes in the arms of the one whose shadow she had lived in all her life. You know, you read accounts like this in the scriptures, and you're like, okay, where's the good guy? You know? Who, who's the hero in the story? Am I supposed to be like Jacob? Nope. Am I supposed to be like Laban? Nope. And what happens a lot of times, as modern readers, we take these little pieces, these little chunks out, and we, we try to have them stand alone. They don't always stand alone. They're part of a bigger narrative. They're part of a bigger message. They're part of an unfolding revelation of God that he reveals through his entire scriptures. The Bible repeatedly provides accounts of God extending grace to lost and broken people. People who don't deserve it. People who rarely seek it. People who sometimes fail to appreciate it even after they've received it. If that's the great biblical story arc into which every individual scriptural narrative fits, what can we learn here? Well, one of the things we can learn is this. If you go your own way, not always going to wake up with what you want. If you go your own way, you can have this picture, this idolized notion of what's going to happen. At some point, you're going to wake up. And it won't be your Rachel. 
When it comes to relationships, no person, no, no relationship, no experience, not even the best the world has to offer can give your soul what it needs. So that's one lesson we can take. But here's the second. Here's the second. And we find it right here. Genesis 29, 35. Leah conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will what? This time I'll praise the Lord. No mention of Jacob this time. No mention of an idolized notion of what should be. She just says, this time, this time, this time, this time, I will praise the Lord. And she called the name of this boy, Judah. Repeat after me, this time, I will praise the Lord. One more time, this time, I will praise the Lord. Get used to saying that. You need that. I need that. You need that. This time. Because we're going to make mistakes. We're going to get off track. This time. This time. I will praise the Lord. This is a very different declaration than the ones Leah had made before. There's no mention of Jacob, as I mentioned earlier. What we have going on here is a woman who's realizing her life had been stolen. And this is her first step in getting it back. In this broken world, there is one who is mighty to save. And he's crazy about you. There's a place to write this in your notes. God is jealous for you. Why do I say God is jealous for you? Because the Bible says God is jealous for you. Here's one example among several. Exodus 20, verses 4 through 5. Don't make yourself an idol in the form of anything. You shall not bow down to them. Don't worship them. For I, the Lord your God, I'm a jealous God. Now, before your mind starts to go down the path of jealousy, that's immature. Jealousy, that's two junior high girls crushing on the same boy. You know, that's the basketball player who won't pass because he wants to take the shot himself. Before your mind goes there, go down this road with jealousy. Imagine you're married and your husband or wife doesn't care if you go on romantic dates with somebody else. You want them to care, right? Because if they don't care, they're not committed. They don't care. They aren't committed. God isn't jealous because he's petty or insecure. He's jealous because he's all in. He's all in. And he's been that way. If, if the Bible is true, and I believe it is, he's been that way from the beginning. It says that he knit us together. He knit us together. That every person who's ever breathed, the scriptures say, we bear his image. We read that we're his workmanship. We're created in Christ to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. And we, re- we find out he loved us so much he's willing to die for us. He's jealous. And, and if, if you're tripping over the word jealous, just write zealous. Because scripturally, it's basically the same word. They, in, in, in the English translation to jealous and zealous, they both share the same Hebrew root. They both share the same Greek root. They're basically in, interchangeable. And the more you can grasp this, the, one you can, the more you can grasp that the one who is mighty to save is zealous for us, we can release others from the stifling expectations that we put on them to fill needs that they can't fill, to give us meaning that they can't give us, to complete us, which they can't do. Here's something we've been saying throughout the series. There's a place to write this down in your notes. Idols can't just be removed. They must be what? Replaced. And with all that is within me, I, I encourage you to replace, if you have a relational idol, replace it with God. And what does that look like? It looks like this. This is you. This is God. It looks like that. 
looking to God to say, you know, I'm not going to look to the right, to the left for meaning, for, for, for guidance. I might, I might take some of their wisdom. I might take some of their, their thoughts. But I'm going to align myself with what God says. What God says, I'll do where he leads. I will follow. I'm not going to try to make others into saviors because I already have one. And real quick, those of you who are single, you may have seen this diagram before. If this is you, and this is the person that you want to be in a relationship with, the scriptures say make sure that you're yoked, you're linked with people who are also doing this. Because if you are, as they grow closer to God, who else do they grow closer to? To each other. And if this person's focal point is over here, you're in trouble. Because you're not going to be growing closer to each other. No extra charge for that one. This is the love triangle right here. That's the love triangle that you want. So, bottom line, will you follow in the footsteps of Leah? Will you follow in the footsteps of Leah? Do you, because here's the thing. God is mighty to save. And in Leah's life, things didn't instantly get all perfect. There were all kinds of problems and challenges down the road. But boy, God made beauty out of ashes. <laughs> what was the name given to the child after Leah declared, this time I will praise the Lord? What was the name? Judah. Judah. As God's revelation unfolds, as God's revelation unfolds, it is through the line of this exact same Judah that God sends his son. God's zealous love pours into Leah's open heart, and the girl that nobody wanted becomes the ancestral mother of Jesus of Nazareth. Wow. Salvation came into the world not through Rachel, but through Leah. Idols tend to favor the pretty, the popular, the powerful. None of those are prerequisites with God. And he will bring beauty from ashes in all who put their full hope and trust in him. And, and he, get this, he knows what it's like to be Leah. When the Christ did come, when this son, uh, descendant of Judah, this descendant of Leah, came into the world, he was Leah-esque. He was born in a manger. He, he had, according to the prophets, none, no beauty that we should desire him. He came to his own, his own rejected him. Why would he leave his place of exaltation to become a son of Leah? Because he's zealous. He's zealous for you and for me. So much so he was willing to take upon himself our sins and die in our place. In response, will you do this? Will you look to him? Will you say, as Leah said, this time I'm going to praise the Lord. From this day forward, I follow you. What you say I'll do, where you lead I'll follow. No more other... Idols. I'm going to put my trust in you. We want to give you a chance to do that, to respond right now. We're going to um, give you an opportunity to, uh, to participate in something that we call Holy Communion. Now, communion, just that word, it's just a, that's just a relationship word. You can have communion with an, another person that doesn't resemble this at all. It's just a relationship word that means intimate fellowship you know, or, or communication. That's communion. This is Holy Communion. communion. What we're doing is we're going to participate in a special type of intimate intimacy with God. This morning, we remember the life Jesus lived, the price Jesus paid, the fact that he rose again, and the reality that he's coming again soon. We're going to remember him this day and then consecrate ourselves as we do. Now, if you're not familiar with our church communion, we would never, never have um, say you must come forward. In fact, we don't even have ushers 
with this. We don't say, now this row, now this row, now this row. What we've been doing is we, we, we um, spend time praying together, and then we'll have the communion servers come up. I'll serve them, and they'll get into place. And communion servers, we could have you stay for both songs. We'll have two songs. We could have you stay in place for both songs. Um, and then we just invite you, if you make a decision, to say, yep, that's what I want. That's what I want. Then we invite you to come forward. If you'd still like to learn a little bit more about communion, you can look at the back of your notes. But that's what we're going to do. So let's, let's now commit this time. Let's pray together. We have some prayers here, and then we encourage you to make that your own. All right, so let's, let's pray together. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, to whom all hearts and minds are open and all desires are known, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit that we may more perfectly love you and more worthily magnify your holy name. We confess that we are sinners and cannot save ourselves. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Forgive us, renew us, and lead us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. We are not worthy for these gifts which we are about to receive, but say the word. Let me pray, and then we'll join together with a prayer that Jesus taught his disciples. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for taking this community center and allowing it to be a place where we can experience communion with each other, but most importantly with you. Holy Spirit, descend on this room. Speak to hearts and minds in a way that I can't. As individuals. Or, you know, people who are just joining us here are, are hearing one small slice of, of this amazing unfolding story of your work in creating this world and restoring it. Lord, maybe there's, we pray there's some restoration that would happen here today. Starting with the decision to, to look to you and not idolize notions of, of something else that's going to complete us. Lord, we pray that um, where forgiveness is needed, people will say, I'm sorry. We pray where hope is needed, people will put their trust in you. We pray where strength is needed, Lord, that you are going to bring to mind not only your own strength, but, but the fact that they're not alone, that there's brothers and sisters right here, who will journey with them. So Holy Spirit, make this time holy now. May our, may our thoughts be guided by you. May our hearts be opened by you. May our responses be have nothing to do with what the people around us are doing, but rather what you're doing. And as one last act of solidarity before we come to you individually, we pray this prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever.